Scholars interested in magic and esotericism tend to focus on the differences of these ideas and practices through their historical and cultural variations. But when we focus on the similarities, we find that three simple things keep popping up. One, consciousness is fundamental, meaning it is primary over the physical world. Two, everything is interconnected. Three, there is only one consciousness. That's it. Those three ideas are the basis of real magic. Those same ideas are also expounded in the various philosophies that assume there's ultimately just one substance underlying reality. Historically, that substance has been called by many names. Spirit, Advaita, Brahman, Tao, Nirvana, Source, Yahweh, God, Vallas, and numerous others. Hello and welcome, I'm Douglas Bowles and this is 42 Minutes, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. A production of SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Monday, September 10th, 2018, and while no one expects the Spanish Inquisition, today we'll see if we can't commit a little heresy regarding our current worldview by considering the veracity of real magic. According to noted scientist and best-selling author of The Conscious Universe, magic is a natural aspect of reality, and each of us can tap into this power with diligent practice. But wait, aren't things like ESP and telepathy just wishful thinking and flights of the imagination? Not according to Dean Radin, who worked on the U.S. government's top-secret psychic espionage program known as Stargate. Radin has spent the last 40 years conducting controlled experiments that demonstrate that thoughts are things that we can sense others' emotions and intentions from a distance, that intuition is more powerful than we thought, that we can tap into the power of intention, think the secret, only on a more realistic and scientific level, and that these dormant powers can help us to lead more interesting and fulfilling lives. Beginning with a brief history of magic over the centuries, Raiden offers a vision of a scientifically informed magic and explains why magic will play a key role in the frontiers of science. Dean Raiden, Ph.D., is the chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences and distinguished professor at the California Institute of Integral Studies. And for no nearly 40 years, he has been engaged in consciousness research. Before joining the research staff at IONS in 2001, he held appointments at AT&T Bell Labs, Princeton University, and several Silicon Valley think tanks, including SRI International, where he worked on a classified program investigating psychic phenomenon for the U.S. government. He made his SyncBook Radio debut on Pentimental Number no. 10 in April of 2015, and later that same year, Will and I chatted him up during our Super Normal July for episode 192. At that time, he was working on a synopsis for a new book, which likely became Real Magic, published this past April by Harmony Books. It's always an honor to host someone as distinguished as Dr. Raiden. Welcome back. How are you doing this morning? Thank you. I'm doing fine. Excellent. So let's just start at square one with our talk today. What is science and what is the difference between scientism, scientific materialism, and science as a practice? Well, science is both a method, 
a way of studying reality. And it's also a set of theories and explanations and stories about how we interpret the, the information that we get when we use the methods. Scientism is the, the notion that uh, what we currently know is, is so true as to be inviolable. In other words, like, like a religion, scientism is the same kind of idea that uh, one imagines that our current worldview, the worldview created by science, is completely correct. And so there are many people who come to believe that because our technologies have come out of science and our technologies are undeniably real. And so it's not difficult to get to the point where people begin to believe in science in the same way that theists will believe in religion. So in that sense, is our scientific worldview similar to a mythology in a, in a different culture? Well, yes and no. So no in the sense that uh, we know that much of the scientific worldview is correct because otherwise our technologies wouldn't work. So if we go back into history, the time of the ancient Greeks, for example, they were just as smart as we were, and yet they didn't develop the iPhone or any smartphone, or for that matter, <laughs> hardly anything that we consider a, a piece of common technology today. Well, why didn't they do that? Well, among other things, uh, they they didn't think of uh, of ways of studying the world, the natural world, uh, which from their perspective would take another 1,500 years before empiricism and modern science was developed. And without having that knowledge in hand, it was very difficult for someone to imagine how they could uh, create something like the technologies that we see today. So... The modern scientific worldview is demonstrably correct in many ways. The question is, is it completely correct? Do we understand everything at this point? And the answer there is absolutely not. There are many fundamental questions that we simply assume within science, but we don't actually understand them yet. And of course, there's essentially an infinite amount of other things that we haven't even encountered yet that science eventually, if our species lasts long enough, will encounter and start to understand as well. In my introduction, I invoked Monty Python by saying that no one ever expects the Spanish Inquisition, but so how is science like that? Well, I guess you could put uh, two types of scientists. Many scientists, perhaps a majority, are what amounts to technicians. They take the or current ways of thinking about reality and make little baby steps to advance our understanding in, in all domains. And then there's a, min, a minority of scientists who are more uh, creative or visionary, where they're trying to leap beyond the, the bounds of the known and are not that interested in taking baby steps, but in taking large steps to answer either fundamental questions that, that remain unresolved or are uh, addressing anomalies these annoying facts and measurements that don't seem to fit within the scientific worldview, and they're attracted to the anomalies and try to figure out what they mean. So, so science is not monolithic. There's millions of people who are scientists in all, all different domains, and there's a lot of 
scholars who are involved in the scientific process. We think of it mostly as philosophers of science, but there are also uh, very important historians and uh, sociologists and others who are not thought of as being hard scientists who are important in the way that science continues to evolve. Well, let's go back in time. Um, last year, there was a popular book by Kurt Anderson that was really making the rounds. And I think what he was doing was kind of capitalizing on our current political moment that's kind of scary and showing how magical thinking got us to where we were. Did you happen to see that book? I don't recall seeing that book, but I'm familiar with the the history of magic turning into science, because that's definitely what happened. Magical thinking or magical concepts eventually became what we, we currently think of as science. The The lineage is, is very clear. Well, this book was definitely trying to, it fell more on the, the dogma side of things and really showing how squishy thinking is. I mean, it even called uh, Professor Jeffrey Kripal out for uh, leaps of fantasy. But a year later, I'm noticing a much different open-mindedness. So at the same time that your book is coming out, you've got a book by uh, Gary Lockman showing how meme magic and chaos magic could have led to Trump's election. Um, he's just showing how that is a, a possibility that magic has real world effects. And he traces this lineage of new American spiritualism through new thought to Trump. Uh, another book by Michael Pollan about like the open-mindedness of reconsidering psychedelics to look at consciousness in a much wider view than than we've allowed since since we shut that down in the 60s. And then also like uh, uh, an author by the name of T.M. Lerman who wrote a really interesting article in Harper's about uh, uh, schizophrenia and hearing voices and, and how just being willing to consider viewpoints outside of what is considered the norm now. Are you sensing that your book is kind of in an optimistic moment or, you know, what... What is your sense of this this moment right now and you, how your book is landing? I think we are in a upswing in terms of openness to these kinds of ideas. Uh, one thing I should preface this, though, is, is that what I mean by the term magic, I'm, I'm specifically talking about these ancient practices, as, as you mentioned in your opening piece. Uh, but we use the word magic only because you don't have a, good, a better word for it yet. So if you go back far enough in history, everything was magical. We didn't have good explanations for why things worked. So we made up mythologies and stories. Well, we have new mythologies and new stories today that are more accurate. That allows us to make things. So they're better stories. Some would say that the mathematics that describe modern technologies and much of our scientific worldview, they're also stories. Because after all, mathematics is just a language symbolic language. And so many physicists have, have puzzled over the idea of how can it be that a three, three pounds of tissue inside your head came up with a symbolic language that describes many aspects of the physical world to 12 decimal places. That doesn't make any sense at all. It makes a lot of sense when you think of it more from a magical perspective. And so what I mean by magic in this sense is 
is that ultimately reality becomes mental. It's as though the all of everything that we know is related in some way to consciousness, which is roughly synonymous to words like information, symbolism, mathematics, uh, even linguistics. All of those are much, much closer to ancient ideas about magic, which is, as you as you were reading, consciousness is fundamental, is a very different kind of worldview that was around for much, much longer, for thousands of years, as compared to the scientific worldview, which assumes that everything is made out of matter and energy. So we have what what amounts to, for, for a very long time, a clash between those two worldviews, but as evidence of a an opening or a loosening of previous prejudices, uh, my book Real Magic has been out and, and available now for about five months, and it has sold more books in five months than my previous book, which was on meditation and yoga, but also about psychic phenomena. It has sold more in five months than the other book has sold in five years. So we're talking about a factor of 10 or more books being sold, which is simply reflective of what people find interesting. So that's just one indicator. And I know from my publisher uh, that they were initially somewhat reluctant to buy a book on magic. Uh, but then they decided, well, I guess the, the trends are pointing upwards. And we do see many, many more books now available from major publishers and lots of private books as well uh, that are beginning to push into these domains. So I think, yeah, the, the times are changing. Well, in terms of audience too, so I read a lot of pop science books and I really enjoy those. But in terms of what you're trying to accomplish, you know, who, who is the audience that you are aiming for? I'm aiming for anybody uh, who likes to read a book. Okay, that's fair well, enough. And it, I mean, it, it sounds funny, but it, it's actually true because as I point out in the book, uh, find somebody who has zero interest in magic. And of course, here now we can talk about the whole lots of different kinds of magic. There's stage magic, there's fictional magic, there's real magic. Almost everyone is interested in these ideas. Otherwise, you wouldn't have Harry Potter being one of the most successful books in the world. You wouldn't have the entertainment business generating billions of dollars a year based on themes like this. And you wouldn't have the perpetual uh, popularity of stage magic. People love these things. So my book is aimed towards anyone who's interested in anything related to magic. And the, the slightly different twist that I have on it is by claiming that not only is science based on a, on a history of magic, but that some of the original magical concepts are actually true. So as you see, when you're dealing with stage magic, you don't need real magic. When you're dealing with Harry Potter, you don't need real magic. When you're dealing with a lot of religion, you do, but only certain people are allowed to perform the magic. Otherwise, it's heretical. Uh, within science, it is uh, highly heretical to talk about actual magic as being real. But that's okay. I'm already a heretic. I don't care. And I guess that was kind of my point. So the book does start with this kind of cheeky little uh, intro uh, mentioned in Galactica today about, you know, the crazy 21st century when when it was just the dawning of a new era of 
science or you know magic you know where uh the exploration of clairvoyance or psychokinesis just you know magic what what we understand is as psi i suppose um but if you were writing for like a scientific audience they would they would read that and and chuck the book across the room potentially because like I guess, like you said, you're already a heretic, and, and so it doesn't matter. You don't. You're not going to reach them anyway. For people who ha- are completely convinced that today's scientific understanding is correct, and they've never had a psychic experience or a psychedelic experience, or and they don't care about meditation, there is nothing that I could say or anyone can say that would convince them otherwise. So I consider those people are a lost cause. Uh, I mean, they're welcome to believe anything that they want, but they're they're not going to be attracted to evidence, even scientific evidence. And that's very clear. I give examples of that in the book. But that's fortunately a pretty small minority. Uh, even among scientists who are brought up in the traditional ways of thinking about scientific worldview, which is which includes me, if you have any interest at all, both in your personal experience, uh, and in the nature of reality, in a larger sense, you would be attracted to the idea of magic as an actually real thing. And so part of the, the point of my book was to, was to provide evidence for people interested in such things uh, and uh, stories that are not scientific stories, but well-documented to indicate that there were some people around who were practically at the level of the legendary Merlin terms of what they were able to do. So from a lot of different angles, including theoretical angles, I I was making a case that magical concepts and practices are actually real, hence the name. Yeah. Of course, you do relate uh, stories about when when you have scientists that are unwilling to even look at the data, or I think there was even an anecdote about a report that was given to Congress that they won't even look at because it has to do with with uh, what they refer to as Bigfoot, even though it doesn't have anything to do with Bigfoot. Yeah, that wasn't about Congress, I don't think. If if I might were, have mixed some things together. Yeah, yeah, no, that was about a a meeting with a, a couple of prominent scientists uh, who were equating the study of psychic phenomena with Bigfoot. It's a, from their perspective, then, that any of these topics basically belong to mar- uh, supermarket tabloids, and it's not a proper topic for science. But that is exactly why I went to my scientific colleagues for endorsements on the book. And besides two Nobel laureates who endorsed the book, I have many professors uh, across the board from hard science to soft science and scholarship, all of whom were, were providing endorsements including a former director of the National Science Foundation and many others. So there's sometimes a, a distorted view of, of what science is about is uh, promulgated by, I hate to use the word mainstream media, I, because that's, that's overused. It's more like certain serious media, media that, that take themselves seriously. Uh, they project an image which comes out of, of journalism, which is a very skeptical domain. They project an image that uh, no, no prominent scientist would believe in such things. And that's completely false. 
In fact, the majority of scientists believe in such things. The difference between scientists and the general population is that scientists are taught not, taught not to talk about it. But scientists are human too. We have the same kinds of experiences and interests as anybody else, but they're taboos where we simply don't talk about certain things. So one of my other interests in writing a book like this and in doing many, many podcasts and talks around the world is to simply break the taboo, to point out that, yeah, you can be a serious person and talk about these topics, including from a scientific perspective, and, and it's okay. It's okay to do that because these are very, very common experiences that we're talking about. Oh, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> well, that's good because with only 42 minutes to solve all of the uh, the universal questions, we're way ahead of schedule. So I think that is a very, a very positive view. Here's, here's something interesting. Because, I mean, so reality seems to behave kind of in this classical physics sort of way that uh, there's cause and effect and uh, therefore magic exists only in really tiny you know we can influence things but you can't move things in a in a great way I mean I think you do mention three or four cases of people who seemingly behaved like they were uh I, in the book, you state that everyone has a little bit of magical ability, but that someone with a lot of magical ability who could levitate or do things like that is very, very rare. Mm -hmm. Do you think our reality will ever catch up with the quantum worldview? And that I, I heard someone say that our post-truth moment is reflecting quantum physics now more than classical physics. Well, I guess uh, perhaps there, there's certainly within the domain of alternative medicine that uh, you can get everything from quantum healing to quantum toothpaste. So, yes, it uh, from physics gives us a sense of what do we think reality is like, and quantum mechanics gives a very different picture of reality than classical physics. And more and more people are beginning to catch up with that. And you, you see it somewhat uh, because when I was in college, uh, way back in the Jurassic period, uh, <laughs> I, I took advanced courses on physics, and we just barely were touching on quantum mechanics. It was it was considered uh, beyond advanced physics at that point. And so today, you have people in high school who are beginning to study something about quantum mechanics because it's such an important aspect of modern technologies. And that makes a big difference because now you have people who are growing up with what used to be considered just completely weird ideas. And now they may still be weird ideas, but we're using tools in the in a high school physics lab uh, showing that these are quite real. And that, that changes from generation to generation. It changes what people then think about the nature of reality. And that in turn opens people to the idea that maybe things are not quite as as they seem uh, that we when we look out at the world with our eyes we understand now that that is a construction of the brain and that the world is actually much more complicated than that now i, I probably should add though that if somebody was not educated in quantum mechanics then they would think all of this stuff is just completely nonsense because it's true, you can, this is not common sense. You can't see it with your eye. 
you can't even see it very clearly with something like a microscope or a telescope. Uh, but with the right kind of instruments, you can now demonstrate that things like entanglement are quite real. Uh, in fact, at, at work, I'm doing an experiment to see whether uh, the mind can influence quantum entanglement. And I'm able to do this because I have an optical system on my desk which produces entangled photons. So 10 years ago, it would have cost $10 million to do that, and you couldn't put it on your desk. But today, you can buy an instrument that produces about 1,000 entangled photons per second, and every second you get a, a measurement of the strength of entanglement from, from those 1,000 photons, or 1,000 pairs of photons. So it allows us to do experiments now that are fairly easy, uh, and the, the it's still kind of mind-boggling to imagine what's going on at, at that level, but you can demonstrate that two photons that look like they're completely independent because they're going down different fiber, uh, fiber optic cables, they're actually not independent anymore. They're, they're entangled. So I think being faced with both the the science, the mathematics, and being able to do desktop experiments now is changing our view of what reality is like. Well, the other kind of fascinating aspect to this is that it seems it's, it seems like coincidence or some of these things, they definitely have more mass to them depending on the emotional level involved. And so it seems like the idea of interconnectedness, human beings show more interconnectedness when there is this level of emotion involved. And that's where you get into interesting synchronicities and, you know, strange coincidences and things. But it doesn't necessarily play nice in a lab or... Um, scientifically. Oh, I, I'm not sure I agree with that. The, the, all of the psi phenomena and magical phenomena, they're all psychophysical. They, they involve something to do with the physical world because mm -hmm. they do things, but they're also involved with the psyche. So uh, this, and with consciousness in some way, I mean, including unconscious, it's by definition, you're not aware of it, but it's still part of, of a mental space in some way. So the fact that emotion is known to be a modulator of these kinds of abilities has been that's been around for a long, long time. It's been studied in, in the lab many different ways, uh, and we find that it works in the lab if you use emotion as, an, as a target. So it's, it's not surprising to me at all that uh, anything that you find that can help focus one's motivation or attention and of course, emotion will certainly do that, uh, that that will modulate these kinds of abilities. And among other things, be, being a psychophysical phenomenon, uh, it, it shouldn't be surprising at all that if you're able to manipulate one side of that, that relationship, that it has to influence the other side. So anything you do to the psyche that modulates what we can think of as its strength or its focus has to have a corresponding result in the on the physical side and that's one of the reasons i'm interested in the interactions between mind and matter because if it's really true that we're dealing with 
the physical world and consciousness being entangled in some important way, then you should be able to do experiments where you manipulate either the psyche or the physical side and show that they're correlated. And so that's what I do in the laboratory and that's what my colleagues around the world have been doing for, well, for now for about 80 years, since the 1930s. And we do find that those relationships are quite real. Okay, so then you have what isn't necessarily a mathematical formula, but, but could be written that way. And it is little c is equal to big C. Well, you you just did a, a, a segue, a quantum segue. Uh, the quantum mechanics is all about uh, discreteness, right? It's, so if you're doing a smooth segue from one topic to the other, you, you do little steps and see how it all connects. You did a quantum segue in which you just jumped into a much bigger and different kind of topic. So the, the topic of, of little c and big C is, is more complex than simply a, a psychophysical relationship. Uh, and this, it is related, of course, but the, the notion is that all of the esoteric traditions are basically saying that uh, the, the universe consists of consciousness. That's the fundamental. And everything else emerges out of consciousness in some way. So the physical world, space, time, matter, and energy, all of that is somehow emerging out of some primordial form of awareness. How, we, how it does that, we don't know yet. Uh, there, one of the things I point out in the book is that at the leading edge of uh, physics today and mathematics and quantum information science, there are people who are working on this very idea that somehow if you start with information or consciousness, that things can emerge out of that primordial state. And this is also true just in physics in general, where people are trying to push beyond quantum mechanics as we currently know it into something even more fundamental, because it's still not completely satisfying that we, our best theory of reality doesn't seem to be reality as Einstein wanted and as people have in their everyday life. Instead, our best theory of reality is basically a probabilistic theory as though underlying everything, there's just wave-like proto-probabilities of things, and that doesn't feel very satisfying. So people are trying to push the envelope further down, metaphorically, into some subspace that is even deeper than quantum mechanics, and some physicists are, are saying that there's something like consciousness there, that's what is at the bottom. In fact, Max Planck, who started the whole quantum revolution, he said that ultimately consciousness really is a fundamental. That's the, the one thing that's at the very bottom. So the notion of little c and big C comes out of that because the only way that we know about consciousness is because we are in fact conscious. Each of us has a little piece, the little, little c consciousness, that seems to be inside our head. And the esoteric traditions then say that that sense of personal awareness, the thing that you call me inside your head, typically, that is identical to this universal consciousness with a capital C that permeates everything. And it's, it's eternal because it's not in space or time yet. And it's, uh, it has all of the ideas that we would consider with the divine, but 
without without the religious overtones to it. It's simply fundamental that's everywhere. So the reason why magic works then is that if it is true that little c equals big C, which a Hindu might say Atman equals Brahman, that's what that idea is about. If that is true, then magic has to exist because if the physical world and everything we know about it emerges out of consciousness and you have a little piece of that inside your head, then you can manipulate the world in the same way that big C consciousness made the whole universe in the first place. But you don't have much of that in your head. You, you the you that is that we equate with little c, is almost think of it in a holographic way, that you're a piece of some gigantic holistic something. Uh, but as a tiny little piece of it, you don't have the same degree of resolution or I'll put the word power in quotes as the whole. And so you're not able to emerge. You're not able to manifest as much as if you were much, much larger and also in quotes. So the moment I start using quotes around words, it gives you the, the, it's an indicator that we don't have the right language yet to talk about this. Common language fails pretty quickly. And this, you see exactly when a mystic or even somebody who has a psychedelic experience, a really profound one that changes their life, you ask them, well, tell me what it was like. And almost always they would say, well, it's ineffable. I can't because language fails in those other, in these stranger states that are not, not like common sense. So even though it's ineffable, people will spend the rest of their life writing 25 books trying to explain it because of the, of the profundity of the idea. So that's a little bit why, uh, why when you read books about real magic, most of those books are I take as stories. These are ways uh, that magic, that we can talk about magic given the limitations of language that we currently have. How does this relate to the perennial philosophy and what is the perennial philosophy? The perennial philosophy, uh, so named by uh, Aldous Huxley, although the, the word goes back to the Greek philosophers, the notion that there's some primal theology or primal religion, primal original idea about the way that reality is, that, that notion has echoed through history, that there's, there is some fundamental from which all of the diversity of the world is seen. Uh, the, the perennial philosophy basically is that consciousness is fundamental. In philosophy, you'd call it idealism as opposed to materialism. And most scientists are brought up with the idea of, of materialism, that everything is made out of matter, including mind. Materialism is completely the opposite. Everything is made out of mind, including matter. And I've kind of reluctantly been drawn, kicking and screaming all the way, to regard idealism as a better set of assumptions than materialism. And one easy way to describe it is that uh, it is only through my awareness that I know anything at all. And, and so from that perspective, this is true of everyone. Anyone who has any sense of awareness, the only things that you actually know for sure are what you are aware of. Everything else 
becomes an inference, including everything we know about science is an inference based on your personal knowledge. And this is one of the reasons why, in, especially in today's um, polarized politics, that people are essentially, through their awareness, are creating a worldview. They, they create a, the world that they live in and a certain lens on reality. And so if you, you grow up in a certain place and time, you will perceive reality very differently than somebody else. That's what creates the polarization. And it's very easy for that to happen. It's much more difficult to get people to adopt a similar worldview. So this happens in science. It happens in politics. It happens everywhere. We are all individually creating a world that we are a set of a, a type of reality that we can perceive. And it's all based on awareness. So we don't have time to go into uh, solipsism and the other uh, other aspects of idealism. But basically, I think that the idealist worldview or what actually I would more inclined to talk about uh, neutral monism as a, a worldview but it comes out of that out of that tradition of idealism rather than materialism. Well, so the interesting thing that happens too is that you sh you show through experiments that big C kind of upends the idea of our notion of time. That time in experiments you can you can see how uh, these experiments predicted like precognition. I guess is the mm the thing but from our community we really were looking so 9-11 was one of these big consciousness bursting moments where everyone was focused on the same thing mm -hmm. and and therefore it it felt like to us that it caused a ripple you know we started looking at media before and we would see and this is not scientific but anecdotal but you would see in movies and things the the twin towers and it seemed it seemed to kind of anticipate this this coming event you know after we arrived there mm -hmm. yeah and many many people reported dreams beforehand uh, that were matched to that day uh, it, as anecdotes you can't do very much with it other than collect them but we know from laboratory experiments under controlled conditions that precognition does exist. And that, that suggests that at least some of the stories that we heard about 9-11 were probably true. People did have very strange feelings about this massive event in their future. In the lab, of course, we, we create microscopic versions of 9-11 by showing people emotional pictures, but that works too. Even fairly simple emotional future events can be shown to, be, to affect your physiology differently than future calm events. Oh, I keep locking up. <laughs> um, it's the profundity of the ideas. See, it's you just blame it on our inability to have the right language. And by the way, I was speaking to a Chinese colleague the other day, and in Chinese has a very different uh, way of describing things like time, like the tenses that we use in English. They're different in Chinese, so they think about time differently. Their, ex their experience of time is different as well. So once again, language is our friend and also gets in the way. Well, in the book, you talk about 
random number generators and world consciousness projects. And so that's more of a macro, you know, what is the world doing as a collective at any given moment? And does it ever, you know, does, does that affect these, these experiments? Did they have data for 2001, 2001, and was that, did it register? It did. Yeah. Yeah. We, the global consciousness project was running at that time. Uh, it's still running. It's been going for 20 years or so now. Uh, and it was running then. That was early in the in the process. But yeah, it produced an effect that we were able to measure. Uh, that that experiment, by the way, formally ended after 500 events a few years ago. And overall, what we look at is uh, for a, a pre-registered type of analysis, do we see a change in randomness as measured by our instruments around the world? Uh, was there a change as a result of large-scale world events? And the answer is yes to seven standard errors. Uh, so that means uh, measuring the deviation from chance expectation to what you actually see. Seven standard errors is associated with odds against chance of something like three trillion to one. So that basically from a statistical perspective, there's no doubt that that database shows that when something big happens in the world that attracts a lot of attention, that the background state of randomness changes and it becomes a little bit more orderly, which once again is now saying that there's a mind matter interaction or a relationship even at the level of the entire world. Okay. Well, I mean, so the last time we spoke, you you said how it's good that magic isn't easy because it would be really scary for someone's whims to become reality. But it kind yep. of feels like this last year, we've kind of experienced that a little bit. I'm wondering, you know, as a closing thought, are you hopeful for the future? Well, I'm a chronic optimist. Uh, it's sometimes difficult in the midst of things to be optimistic given the direction that we go. But on the other hand, humans are very resilient. We, we've had to be resilient, otherwise we wouldn't be here. Uh, so at the same time that you would, uh, typically everyone likes everyone else to agree with them, uh, it's actually very healthy from a species perspective that we have lots and lots of different ideas about uh, who we are and what, what we should be doing because it's that very chaos and creativity that probably allows our species to survive all sorts of nasty future events. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us again. You're welcome. You've been listening to Dean Radin on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com. Check out his website at deanradin.com. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests, and check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast, check out others. It's currently all the SyncBook Radio archives are free. We also feature a great search engine to help you find what you need. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com. Thanks so much, and back off, man. I'm a scientist.
Yeah,